You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. The main difference between animal and human emotions is we have a great big cortex, so we can process these emotions in a much more complex manner. So my cat can get depressed? He can get kind of depressed, but it's not going to write a sad poem. (laughs) Animal behaviorist Temple Grandin. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Why do animals think and behave and react in the ways they do? Animal behaviorist Temple Grandin has spent her lifetime looking for answers, and for her the journey has been a personal one as well. Grandin is autistic, and she has found that animal behavior is not unlike that of some people with autism. I first met her in 2005 when she published her book Animals in Translation. So here now from 2005, Temple Grandin. Well, I wanted to just educate people more about how animals think and feel. And being a person with autism has helped to give me some insight into this because I don't think in language. Now, of course, animals don't think in language. Mm -hmm. They're going to think in pictures. They're going to think in smells, in sounds, in touch sensations, and then they can associate those sensations uh, together into different categories. Do they in a manner of speaking, see things that we just don't see or can't see or or overlook? Well, since animal thinking is sensory-based, they tend to notice detail that most people don't see. I've done a lot of work with uh, meatpacking plants on making the handling a much better animal welfare. And people often ask me, are cattle scared of getting slaughtered? No, cattle are scared of a piece of paper. If I took a little piece of paper and I put that paper down in the entrance of the chute, that will make the cattle stop a little reflection on the floor, a chain hanging down, seeing a person moving through a fence. You get rid of these little distractions by changing lighting, adding lighting. They're also scared of the dark. Mm -hmm. They'll move easily through the chute once you remove these little details that they notice. You made one point in the book I'd never thought. I grew up in cattle country, so I should have known some of this, but I didn't realize that when there's a stark change in lighting, if they come in from bright sunlight into a very dark area, they're going to I don't know if they want to say panic, but they're certainly going to be very alarmed at that. Well, they're very reluctant to enter it. And if you have a cattle handling facility on a ranch inside a dark building, on a real sunny day, you can have a problem getting the cattle into the building. And one of the best ways to fix that is to open up the walls or add white translucent skylights to let in lots of shadow-free light to get more light in that building. What is it? It's just your book is the first I've ever seen. I've interviewed lots of authors about animals before, but yours is the first book that I've ever seen that really shows me this aspect of the way an animal must be thinking. Well, I think sometimes if, you, if a person thinks totally in language, it's hard to think how an animal would think. In fact, there's some philosophers that say that without language, you don't have true thought. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to say, well, then I guess I don't, I'm not able to think. <laughs> I don't know how I could get to the airport and even get here if I couldn't think. <laughs> Are, is there a special link? I think this is a point you're making in the book. Is there a special link between animals and people with autism? I think the, the main link is the fact that many people with autism don't think in language. Mm-hmm. Like when I was a little kid, how did I form a concept that a, um, a dog was different than a cat? Mm-hmm. I originally did it by sorting the animals by size. But when our next-door neighbors got a dachshund, <laughs> I could no longer 
you know, say that cats were smaller than dogs. So I had to figure out why the dachshund was not a dog. And I noticed that every single dog, no matter how small, has exactly the same nose. So now I had a visual feature that I could use for categorizing cats. Now you could also, and cats and dogs, because mm-hmm. cats have their nose too. Mm-hmm. And uh, you could also do it by sound, meowing and barking. I could sort them that way or even smell. Cats and dogs uh, smell differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is the same, same the same way that animals will distinguish one species from another. Well, absolutely. I mean, people wonder what's the dog doing when he's sniffing around the hydrant. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to say he's smellulizing. Because just think about it. When he sniffs all those smells, each one of those is going to be a little specific smell memory. He knows who's been there, how long ago they were there, what their rank, social rank is. You know, whether the female dog is in heat or not. There's a lot of information on that hydrant. <laughs> or the wheel of your car, usually an expensive car. But or whatever. <laughs> or, whatever or, it is. or whatever. But this is, there's, there's, I think at one point in the book, you, or several points in the book, you actually say animals might actually be savants. Well, certain animals and, and certain people with autism, not all of them, mm-hmm. have tremendous ability with memory. Uh, I just read a newspaper article about a, a man who's an autistic savant who has all the pipes and wiring under the streets memorized. And he's a very valuable employee to the city because when they go to dig things up, they consult him to make sure they don't dig up water pipes and electric cables. Well, migrating birds have a tremendous ability to remember routes because a bird only has to be shown the route once. Mm-hmm. And then he remembers the route. Squirrels can hide nuts in hundreds and hundreds of different places, and they remember where they hid those nuts. I thought that was just a, a myth. No, no, it's not a myth. <laughs> I'm guessing that there's a lot of things that either people will dismiss as myth or that people just didn't know at first that you're going to have to tell them in this book maybe for the first time. Well, there's been some very interesting research. One of the things I try to do is combine my own experiences along with going through the some of the very best literature on animal cognition. And there's some excellent studies that we outline in the book on uh, prairie dog, uh, a language-like ability in prairie dogs where they have different calls and they have like a noun-like call, verb-like calls, and even an adjective. How much of that, I mean, much again, I'm not telling you anything new, has been dismissed as anthropomorphism over the years, which is a very difficult word for me to say. Uh, But, but, are there those who will take what you're saying and say, oh, come on, she's just ascribing things to animals that they couldn't possibly have? Well, some of this animal cognition, there's now very good scientific research being mm-hmm. done on this that you can't just, you know, poo-poo it off. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the problem is it's hard for people who think totally in language to imagine what thinking in language with no language mm-hmm. would be like. And I often get asked, well, you're really good at talking. What do you mean you don't think in language? Well, when I get asked a question about an animal... I get a picture comes up in my mind and then a videotape. And then I watch that videotape in my head and then I describe that videotape. Um, and basically what language does is it narrates the pictures that are in my head, especially when I'm dealing with new material. Now, I do have some language stuff where it's just tape-recorded scripts. <laughs> but if we get to talking about something new, mm-hmm. I form a picture in my mind as we talk about it. So is it necess- that's why you described early on in the book about you actually trying to see things from an animal's point of view. Well, when I first started out working with cattle in the, in the early 70s, I noticed that some cattle would just walk through the chutes really easily to get their vaccinations. Other times they'd walk. And 
it seemed reasonable for me to get down in the chutes and see what they were seeing. So I got my camera, and I got down in the chutes, and I saw there was shadows. They could see people. Maybe it was headed right directly into the sun. I mean, nobody before thought to go in the chutes and see what are these cattle actually seeing. And they were seeing things in there that scared them. After this short break, Temple Grandin explains how animal emotions are much like ours. Now back to my 2005 conversation with Temple Grandin. So if, hypothetically, if I've got a German Shepherd that is doing something odd, is it helpful for me to get down on all fours and try to see what he's seeing? Well, first of all, we need to figure out when you have a behavior problem, what's motivating a behavior is it fear? Is it aggression? Is the dog just happy and he wants to play? What's motivating the behavior? Mm-hmm. Now, if you have a situation where you have an animal that's afraid of something, you need to try to figure out what's his handling history because that fear memory is going to be stored as either a picture, a smell, uh, a sound. Uh, animals can differentiate between the sound of the good person that's good to them and the sound of the bad person that's bad to them. They tend, oftentimes dogs make a generalization that ladies are good and uh, guys are bad. But let's say a dog has been beat up by a person. Mm-hmm. He, he's going to get a fear memory. And maybe he'll have a fear memory of a wastebasket because that's what he was looking at right when the guy was beating him. So then when you, you go in another place where you have that same wastebasket, he's going to be afraid of it. There was another dog that got hit by a car. And you'd think he'd be afraid of cars. Mm-hmm. No, he was afraid of the piece of pavement he was looking at the moment the car hit him. So now when they take him out for a walk, you can't get him over that piece of pavement. That's incredible. I was curious. Also, we have a cat. We have only one cat. It had never had a can of tuna before, but I opened a can one day, not even a tuna, it was a can of soup or whatever, and he came running. Why? <laughs> Is there something about cats that they understand that a can opener means there's food coming? Oh, absolutely, they understand. <laughs> You know, that can opener was associated with tuna. So then he hears that can opener again that is associated with food. Oh, absolutely. They pick right up on that. Sometimes you almost have to be a detective to try to figure these things out. Well, it's looking at all the little details. And if you have a one thing I want to say, if you have a behavior problem with an animal that's fear-based and you punish it, you're going to make it worse. And one of the things you want to try to figure out is what is the dog afraid of? Or what's the horse afraid of? I knew a horse that was afraid of black hats. He'd been abused by somebody wearing a black hat. You could wear a white cowboy hat and he was fine. But if you wore a black cowboy hat, he'd rear and he'd panic. Now, if I could just get rid of the black hats, he'd be fine. Is it really that simple sometimes? It's sometimes that simple, but you have to, you know, if I don't know the handling history, Mm -hmm. then I may not know what he's afraid of. Another common problem you can get with horses is maybe a horse was uh, had a lot of rough training and they used a jointed snaffle bit. Mm. And um, he's afraid of that bit. Now, if I just get rid of that bit and I replace it with a one-piece bit that feels different, now I've removed the feared object and uh, the new bit feels different. See, that's a different feeling picture. Since these memories are sensory-based, they're going to be very specific. So I just replace it with a different bit. That's like a different picture file. Okay, that's okay. I'm not going to be mm-hmm. afraid now. Now, perceptions aside, if we do, is it, do we then step into the, uh, the idea of whether animals actually have emotions? I mean, do they have emotions the same as we do? Absolutely, they have emotions. Now, it's simpler, but they're going to have fear. They're going to have mm-hmm. anger. 
they have a happy, they have kind of a sad, they have emotions. In fact, if you go into the brain and look at the basic emotion centers in mammals, that's pretty much the same as it is in humans. The main difference between animal and human emotions is we have a great big cortex, so we can process these emotions in a much more complex manner. But all of the psychiatric drugs, things like Valium, Prozac, these drugs all have the same effect on animals that they have on humans because we have the same neurotransmitter systems in the emotion circuits as animals have. So my cat can get depressed? It can get kind of depressed, but it's not going to write a sad poem. <laughs> and, and one of the things is an autistic person. I have emotions, but they're simple. You know, I can get angry. You know, a dog, you know, can be growling one minute. The next minute it's wagging its tail. You know, the emotions are simpler. They're processed in a less complex way. But they, they run on the same neurotransmitter systems that we have. Animals feel fear. Animals feel pain. And that's been very well scientifically documented. Do they feel those things in the same way that we do? Yes. Let me tell you about animal pain research. Um, there was an experiment done with chickens where they artificially induced arthritis by injecting some nasty chemicals into the leg. And then they gave the chicken two feeders. And one feeder had regular grain in it. The other feeder had, uh, had grain mixed with bitter-tasting painkiller. And when the leg was really sore, it ate lots of the painkiller. Then as the leg healed, it ate more and more of the regular grain and then left the painkiller. In other words, it's self-medicated the same way we would if we had pain. And to me, that's a gold standard experiment that animals feel pain, and those, those experiments have been done in the rat and in the chicken. But then again, one of the other tidbits that I picked up from your book is that apparently dogs, cows, some animals don't necessarily feel the pain of, a, of an injection like, like, a, like a, an inoculation the same way that, that humans well, would. Well, the biggest problem with an injection is the fear factor. <laughs> Actually, it doesn't hurt very much, but it's getting scared. And sometimes mm-hmm. when you're working with cattle and getting them up shoots and people are yelling at them, uh, that's going to be scary. And that's much more bad for the animal than the little pinprick is. You think we just don't? understand animals at all (laughs) well there's a lot of people that you know that do understand animals and i find a lot of people that are visual thinkers uh, will understand animals and interestingly enough i find a lot of people that have a lot of other learning problems a lot of dyslexics um, and some of the other uh, learning problems are often extremely good with animals because they're not quite so bound up on thinking in language I notice your book is selling extremely well on Amazon. Uh, you're in the, I think, when I checked a, little, a couple hours ago, I think it was number 20, uh, you know, which is, that puts you like up in Harry Potter territory and uh, South Beach Diet territory. Do you suppose it's because it's animal buyers, animal lovers who are buying your book, or is it people with autism who are buying your book, or, or, or you know, their families, or, or why do you suppose your book is so popular? Well, I think it's both. I mean, you know, and I had a book 10 years ago, Thinking in Pictures, right. and, and um, you know, people with autism and families are probably the biggest buyers, but I have a lot of um, animal trainers uh, buying that book because it gave them insight into how animals think. And I, and I think there's going to be a lot of interest in my new book, Animals in Translation, uh, with uh, people that work with animals and train animals. Temple Grandin is 75 now and still active in the field of animal behaviorism. And you can find an easy Amazon link to Animals in Translation by Temple Grandin in the show notes or at our website, HeardEverything.com. By the way, at HeardEverything.com is where you can also hear my interview in 2006 with the dog whisperer, Caesar Milan. Dog Park is Chuck E. Cheese. The dog park is not developed by dogs. 
dog park is developed by humans who don't want to take a dog for a long walk. And my 1990 conversation with the legendary Jane Goodall. When I was a child, I had two dreams. One was to study animals, work with them, learn about them, preferably in Africa. And the other was to write books about them. So how fortunate I've been that those dreams have come true. And of course, we post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find Now I've Heard Everything on every major podcast platform. And please do me a favor and subscribe if you like today's interview. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, if you're of a certain age, you or maybe your kids went through the D.A.R.E. program when you were in school to keep you off drugs, did it work? <laughs> well, next time on Now I've Heard Everything, we'll revisit my 1998 interview with the man who was the first executive director of D.A.R.E., Glenn Levant. It's a sad fact in, in the United States, as well as almost every other country in the world, your children will be approached by another kid, and they will be offered a substance that you don't want them to take. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Bill Thompson.